to winter all the way to summer in a matter of a couple weeks. And every summer, it gets hot and we get in the water. And every summer, the Discovery Channel very helpfully has Shark Week. Have you guys heard about this? Okay. <clears throat> if you Google the phrase shark movies, you will find that we as, as a culture have taken this shark thing really too far. Consider these <laughs> actual movie titles. Yeah, you, you just wait. Noah's Shark. I was intrigued by this one, so I actually read the little description. It's about the big fish that eats people guarding the remains of the ark from an expedition led by a televangelist. <laughs> I don't think or uh, we have a lot of movies about, of course, sharks that are larger than normal. There's Big Shark, Huge Shark, and of course, The Meg. The Meg, I think, is uh, something that John's going to get on a t-shirt for his wife. But um, <laughs> Then we have movies about sharks being in weird places. Sand Shark, Swamp Shark. River sharks, lake shark, sky sharks, <laughs> sharks of the corn. Shows this cornfield with all the rows and a big shark <laughs> coming after somebody running through the corn. Land shark, house shark, <laughs> and yes, pool shark. <laughs> Thank you. Then we have these weird shark combos. Sharknado, because tornadoes and sharks alone are not scary enough. Double shark, it's a shark with a shark head on either end. Ghost shark, atomic shark, robo shark. Toxic shark, if you ever think you might eat one. Vampire shark, how does that even work? I thought the whole point of a shark movie was all the blood everywhere. Virus shark, dino shark, blue demon, and shark exorcist. They're not done, folks. They're not done. They have shark battles. There is Mega Shark versus Giant Octopus. I actually watched that one. I don't recommend it. <laughs> you will be very disappointed. They, they also have Mega Shark versus Crocosaurus. And follow me on this one. Sharktopus versus Whale Wolf. You'd think they'd have the sense to stop there, but no. There are movies about three-headed, five-headed, six-headed, and seven-headed sharks. And my favorite, I don't know the title of this one. I just saw this picture, and I thought, that's, oh, my goodness. It's a shark, which, you know, not scary enough to have just a shark. This one's being ridden by a dinosaur. That's holding an automatic weapon. 
and a stick of dynamite. <laughs> uh, we have lost it. <laughs> uh, anyway, we don't want to get eaten or shot by the sharks of life, do we? Our enemy prowls around looking for whom he may devour, kind of like every shark in all those movies. We know we need help. We can't go it alone. We know we need friends. We know we need community. But our enemy likes to trap us with that, like he tries to trap us with everything else, into making unwise relationships and commitments. Recently, many Protestant denominations part ways over doctrinal disagreements after centuries of unity. Our nation's politics and social fabric are often defined by alliances, loyalties, pauses, or to groups. You're one of them. So, today I'm going to share some biblical examples of wise and unwise alliances, and then some principles about how to decide which is which. First, the nature of an alliance. I used to play a computer game in which elven archers are programmed to say, for the alliance, when clicked for action. The game narrative has humans and elves and dwarves joining forces to defeat orcs and trolls. And if this sounds familiar, you may want to refer to J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit for more details. A lot more details. An alliance is an agreement between two or more parties to work toward a common goal that is, presumably, mutually beneficial. Each party's efforts, or lack of efforts, directly affect the other parties. They depend on one another for victory that they cannot achieve independently. They share risks, sacrifices, and rewards. They also share each other's reputations and the reactions of other parties to their alliance and their mission. Alliances can be tricky things. The enemy of my friend is my enemy. The friend of my enemy is my enemy. The enemy of my enemy, though, is my friend. Got all that straight? <laughs> Takes a little bit of work. I got confused when I was making those, so don't feel bad if you're still not straight on it. Some people never do make up their minds, though, about where to stand. A common enemy can unite divided factions, but those same factions can then turn against each other in the heat of battle. Napoleon said that the easiest enemy to defeat was a coalition. But in World Wars I and II, he would have been surprised at the balance struck between different nations and maintained their alliance, although that balance deteriorated after the war was over. Alliances can be equally balanced or imbalanced, with more influence over one party than over the other. They can be physical, emotional, political, social, or spiritual, but are often a combination. Every alliance involves at least one party choosing to believe of the other. What we believe affects everything 
about our alliances. The Bible has some interesting stories and passages about alliances. Here's what I found when I went looking. First alliance, the alliance of man and woman. How many songs, movies, books have been written about this? Pretty important. Does it matter whom you marry? Yes, it does. Matters who you don't marry. For most of us, it's probably the second most important relationship of our adult years after our relationship with our Savior. Jesus admonishes us that what God has joined together, we must not separate. But we must choose carefully. I heard it said when I was thinking about getting married that it's a good idea to have your eyes wide open before marriage and half closed thereafter. <laughs> now, that's not to say that you don't ignore things that need to be addressed, but that we should be picky and selective about potential mates, but gracious and forgiving once a mate is chosen and joined. Consider the fruit of the following marriages from Scripture. Abraham's wife, Hagar, was the source of Ishmael and thereby most of the modern Arab nations, who are now in perpetual conflict with the nation descended through Abraham's other son, Isaac, his people, the Jews, who live in Israel. Jacob's wives were responsible for the 12 tribes of Israel. He had four, by the way. Jacob and his father-in-law Laban were forced to keep a very wary alliance with one another because of his marriages for their mutual benefit. Mutual distrust for mutual benefit is the basis for all contract law. It was Ronald Reagan who said, trust, but verify. Marriage, though, is different because it's a covenant. We vow that we will do our part no matter what the other party does because that reflects God's covenant with us because he makes the same commitment. Judah's daughter-in-law, Tamar, Solomon's Canaanite wife, Rahab, their son, Boaz's Moabite wife, Ruth, and their great-grandson, David's wife, Bathsheba, all became part of a direct lineage of Christ himself through the alliance of marriage, according to Matthew 1. Ahab's wife, Jezebel, and their daughter, Athaliah, earned quite notorious reputations and God's judgment for themselves and their unwise husbands. Hosea's marriage to Gomer and Joseph's marriage to Mary have such tremendous meaning and influence because both were done very intentionally after discussion with God himself. Both were used as pictures of God's incredible love for his people and his willingness to sacrifice for them. It was so important for God's people to maintain the right kind of marriages that God, through Ezra, had them break off alliances and send foreign wives away. Imagine how Israel and Judah might have been different if Solomon had followed this principle. And if Pilate had listened to his wife instead of the Pharisees, what a difference an alliance makes. Consider the ministry of Priscilla and Aquila together 
of the folly of Ananias and Sapphira's agreement to test the Holy Spirit. And last, the picture of a bride and groom decked out for the greatest celebration ever, the marriage of the Lamb and His church in Revelation. The alliance of marriage, pretty important. Equally important to who you join is how you decide to treat them after you join. And at the time you make this decision, you may have no idea how important this decision is. God's in charge of the timing and the results. Our job is to obey what we know we want and trust him. There are stories of other kinds of alliances, stories of people allied against the purposes of God. Consider the Tower of Babel or the five kings Abraham routed to rescue his nephew Lot, or the many kings who united against Joshua and his army, or the uniting of the armies of our adversary, the devil, and the prophecies of the end of all power and authority before the one true God. No one and no group can or has succeeded against God's plans and purposes. God always wins and always takes the glory. There are also stories of godly alliances. Jonathan's friendship with David was bittersweet, but it was of great benefit to both and a great example for us. Every time the Israelites united behind a judge, a godly king, or a prophet, great good was done, and it succeeded against all opposition. God fought for his people, forgave and cleansed his people, and blessed them exceedingly when they joined him in his way. The book of Proverbs has, has several admonitions about the advantages of two working to help each other or three being hard to break apart or the value of a friend sticking close. Look at how the disciples were transformed by joining the rabbi from Nazareth, the son of man, and how they transformed the world afterwards. There are also some stories about alliances between the godly and the ungodly None of them end well. Going back to Genesis 3, there was a brief moment between Eve's temptation and Eve's sin where she had a choice to make between her God and her desire. Another such moment between Eve's sin and Adam's sin when he had a choice to make between his God and his wife. They got their alliance priorities confused. And they, and all of us now suffer for it. Genesis 19 records how Lot allied himself loosely with the Sodomites. It cost him his home, his possessions, his peace, and his wife, as well as his reputation. Solomon's marriages to women of other faiths, as has been previously mentioned, that cost him his relationship with God and ultimately the unity of his father's kingdom. Ironically, it's in one of Solomon's books, Proverbs, that we are admonished to be careful, not hasty in our commitment. In Numbers 16, the Israelites were admonished to separate themselves from Korah and his followers and his family so that the rebels might be consumed, and they were. 1 Kings 22 records that Jehoshaphat made several alliance mistakes. He married a daughter of his counterpart Ahab. Not my first choice for an in-law. He even went so far as to participate in battle with Ahab and was cursed for it. He lost the battle and nearly lost his life. 
he again allied himself with Ahab, Ahab's son this time, in a business venture and was cursed again. All their ships were wrecked and it cost him a great deal of money. King Asa in 1 Chronicles 16, King Amaziah in 2 Chronicles 25, and King Hezekiah in Isaiah 39 all made bad alliances after seeing God work for them when they trusted him. They all suffered for their mistakes, and so did their kingdoms. The book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is asked and urged, invited, cajoled, wooed many times to join with local leaders, meet with them, hide with them, etc. He refused them all. He saw well the enemy's schemes. The enemy even used a prophetess to tempt Nehemiah. But he stayed focused on what he knew God had called him to do. He didn't try to mix it with anything else. He threw out all the spiritual junk mail. The New Testament writers admonish us in several places to avoid and escape from alliances with unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 6 uses those exact words. Come out and be separated. Do not be mismatched with unbelievers. 1 Thessalonians 5.22, stay away from every kind of evil. Several gospel records tell of Jesus' description of the end times and the many and varied attempts the enemy will make to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Jesus said also to beware of the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees. So what is our conclusion then? Our circumstances... Our spiritual standing and our people can all suffer if we make unwise alliances with unbelievers. We're admonished to step out of the world's ways, avoid mismatching ourselves, and to prepare for opposition and persecution for our alliance with Christ. Now that sounds kind of grim, like we're focusing only on the shark. But what if we remember all that we gain, the good we can do, and the reward that awaits us for joining the Alliance with Christ? Consider these passages. How many times in the Old Testament did the Holy Spirit come upon someone? Nearly all of the judges, Saul, David, when, they, when he did, miraculous things were accomplished for God's people. The Holy Spirit gave prophetic visions Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and many others, we all take great comfort and hope thereby. Jesus said, my reward is with me in Revelation 22. John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. In Matthew and John, ask what you will if my words abide in you. Revelation 3, I stand at the door and knock. John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and that your fruit should remain. John 14, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. He will teach you, bring to remembrance all that I have said. 1 Thessalonians 4.17, we shall meet him in the air and be forever with him thereafter. And in Hebrews 11, all the things that those allied with Christ were able to accomplish and get we must all wait to be perfected together. Nobody gets to open their Christmas presents before anyone else. <coughs>
before everyone has arrived. So there's a lot we had to look forward to, not just in this life, <coughs> in terms of our alliance in, in the body of Christ. Beyond forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. Well, those are incredible. But we also know that we're going to be invited to join and invited to unfriend, get out of, a lot of other groups in this world. So how do we decide which is the way that God wants us to go? Whom do we friend? First principle, we're encouraged to join with other believers and not with non-believers. Can two walk together unless they, unless they agree to meet? 3-3. Three, three. Now, we don't have to agree with everything that every other Christian says or believes in. That would be kind of impossible, wouldn't it? Remember the early days of COVID? In this congregation, we worked very hard not to push anybody out. And it was hard. We talked about it. We prayed about it. We thought about it. We talked some more. We prayed some more. We didn't want the body to be divided because we saw that division was a pretty, um, it was all over the place. So we don't have to agree about everything. But we do need to agree about the important things and keep a united front against our common enemy, which, by the way, is not the lost people of this world. It's not that idiot on Facebook. There's plenty of them, and not just on Facebook. We all make mistakes, don't we? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers in spiritual places. That means, though, that having that united front, being in agreement with other believers, we must also be prepared for backlash. When we explain that we can't join in, when the world invites us to violate God's laws or to draw us closer to it, Satan's real good about not being obvious. He's real good about uh, sneaking in, drawing you just a little bit at a time. If Satan were obvious, if he were truthful, nobody would follow him. Nobody would go for anything. Hey, do this sinful thing. Destroy yourself and the ones you love. Doesn't sell. But if he says, you know you want to. And then that's all he says. That can be a hard hook to resist. So once we've decided to take a stand, once we've decided to ally with Christ, once we've decided we're not crossing that line, people may not understand. People may get upset. People may call us names. People may accuse us of things that aren't true. Keeping your word is admired but not expected. Sometimes people get upset at you for being honest, don't they? Lawyers exist for a lot of those kinds of things. Second principle. We're admonished to join alliances hastily in order to commit ourselves to people above our commitment to God. Second Corinthians 6 quotes Isaiah 52 when it says to come out from among them and be separated. It's not the first time. 
that God told his people there. We're supposed to be wise in our decisions, to read the fine print, to look down the road that we're on with potential allies. Our roads may part ways. Remember in um, John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress, they knew they were supposed to take this road. And right next to it was a softer, grassier road. And it looked for all the world like the road stayed together as far as they could see. But they didn't. They ended up in Giant Despair's castle eventually. If God calls us to a particular path, we must be prepared to break with those who refuse to follow where he leads. We must guard our hearts, and this is hard in the days of uh, all the options we have with entertainment. Guarding our heart is a full-time occupation anymore. Walk in any library, turn on any TV, get on any electronic device with a screen, and it's war. Shields up, red alert, because the enemy's out there, and there's a lot of hooks. This is this country more than I think any other is the world of advertising. It's what you get in a free market economy, which is usually a good thing, but you have to be careful, don't you? You can't just believe everything you hear. You can't buy everything that you see advertised. We have to guard from the ever more subtle lies of the enemy with diligent research and a prayer-filled connection to the Holy Spirit and the body. Third principle. We have to have the understanding that in every group of more than one person, there's going to be differences over something. But that we are hold to some differences and let go of others. My brother said something once that has stuck with me. He said, God bless us four and no more, which you may have heard. But then he added on, until we get to the top floor, and then God bless me and forget the other three. No honor among thieves and all that. There are some differences we need to accept and some we shouldn't. And it's important to understand the difference between the two. We will have to part ways with some in this life. And we'll be tempted to part ways from those we shouldn't. We will probably face loss in our relationships because of our faith. And while we must be ready to say goodbye, if necessary, we must be careful to do it gently and only if necessary. Our adversary is the author of confusion and division and hasty decisions. We are to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace as much as depends on us. And the Holy Spirit helps us to stay together graciously and split kindly if needed and be rejoined if possible. Remember the example of Paul with, I believe it was Barnabas uh, about John Mark. Paul didn't want him, Barnabas did, and they split ways but they weren't enemies when they split ways. They didn't work against each other's ministries when they split ways. And they didn't want to split ways. It wasn't a hasty thing. Our enemy wants us to split quickly, harshly, 
spontaneously, with no thought for how God could redeem a relationship. Burn your bridges. Move on. Good. Our adversary wants us also to agree quickly and sign away loyalties before seeing any fruit or planned destination as a true motivation of our ally. So let's not get hustled into or hustled out of alliances. Some research. Ask some questions. Don't go to Wikipedia only. Check with other people. And if allies look as though they may change their loyalties, let's be careful to investigate before we affirm any kind of an accusation. We look for the true, not merely the juicy. We have an adversary. We have an accuser. We don't need to be joining him. Fourth principle. Remember that what you have to offer in any alliance is worth something. You are valuable because the Jesus you carry is valuable. The gifts of the Holy Spirit and from your Father are valuable. How could they be otherwise? Remember that the enemy wants to distract and drain away and corrupt you and your gifts. And will stop at nothing to fool you into throwing those gifts away or thinking they're worthless or thinking you don't deserve to display them or committing them to a cause that works against God's plan. Remember that you are dangerous to the enemy. That's why he targets you. He knows that when you allow God to work in you and through you, and I just lost my point. There we go. You are important to God's plans and the that's why you must be attracted and drawn in. If you don't get fooled by the counterfeit, you might go for the real thing. You might join up with a group that needs you. You might become part of something amazing. Just what you needed and just what needs you. You matter. Your life makes a difference. And even if you can't see it yet, your enemy can. And so can your father. This is why in Proverbs 9, where Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly are both personified, they cry the same message from the same vantage point. They both offer the same thing, but the price and the fruit are very different. We must ally to survive and to succeed. United with Christ and one another, we stand. Divided from Christ and each other, we fall. But to stay united with each other, we must learn to love which means holding on when we would rather run away and making the difficult effort to untangle ourselves when it would be easier to stay attached. We have to learn to follow our shepherd and keep in step with his spirit. Only in him can we make good and godly alliances work. 1 John 1.7 says that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We are encouraged to work together to stand with and pray for other believers, to pray for ourselves and our leaders, both in the body and in the nation, to pray for wisdom and God's guidance for all our alliances. He is, after all, our good shepherd. 
I would encourage you to pray for all those who are facing division. All, all who lead and exercise authority over us so that we may walk in peace with our allies and so they may ally our nation and congregation according to God's will. There are sharks in the water. But if we swim with Christ, we do our best to be at peace with each other. The sharks will not succeed in tearing us to pieces. We will make it safely to shore together.